This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The federal government pays for airlines to fly into small, often remote airports. This program is called Essential Air Service, and three Colorado airports are part of it, Pueblo, Alamosa, and Cortez. The subsidies, though, are on the chopping block in President Trump's proposed budget. For some perspective, we're joined by James Simmons, who specializes in aviation management at Metropolitan State University of Denver. And hi, James. Good morning. Essential Air Service came about, I understand, in the late 1970s, following the deregulation of U.S. airlines. Why was it implemented? It was implemented because between 1938 and 1978, the federal government controlled routes, prices, and access to all the uh, airports in the United States. When the Carter administration passed the Airline Deregulation Act in that year, a lot of small communities in the United States realized that they were going to end up having airlines withdraw service because airlines were on their own from that point to try to make money, and airlines had the choice to decide what routes they wanted to fly. I see. And so so the the deregulation occurred, and the government said, well, there's still an interest in providing air service to these communities, but it would have to be subsidized in some way. That's correct. And it started out as a very small program. Originally, it was only $7 million. This last year, it's up to about $277 million. It serves around 111 communities in the United States, and uh, that is the United States, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico, and about another 60 destinations in Alaska. This is not the first time the Central Air Service has been at risk of elimination, though. That's correct. Clear back to the Reagan administration, the Clinton administration, George W. Bush also wanted to eliminate the program uh, before President Trump wanted to do it also at this time. Okay, so this is not a new path, not a new runway. Um, Pueblo, Alamosa, and Cortez, as we say, are the beneficiaries in, in Colorado. How much money do those three communities that use essential air service receive? The money actually goes to the airline, not the uh, airport itself. And according to current statistics, the Cortez Air Service is about $3.6 million a year. The Pueblo Air Service is about $1.7 million a year. And the Alamosa Air Service is about $2.6 million a year. Okay. So that totals up to about $7.9 billion a year, which is about 3% of the national total. And are there many people on the planes that, that fly into these places? Actually, out? there are not. Usually the air service is about three flights a day. And right now these airports are served by airplanes that only have about eight or nine passenger seats in them. The most recent year that the government has statistics for it was 2015. And in Pueblo, there were only 3,674 passengers for the whole year. And so if you do the math and, and look at what Pueblo receives as a subsidy and the number of passengers, what does it work out to per seat? For Pueblo, for the actual number of passengers that flew in and out of Pueblo both ways, it was about $484 per ticket that was subsidized. Now, That's right, what the federal government is paying to pick up uh, part of the fare, if you will. That's exactly right. The uh, individual airline has a contract with the Department of Transportation, so the Department of Transportation pays directly to the airline for the number of flights that they fly. And that money doesn't, uh, as I understand it, just 
uh, defray the costs of a ticket because we reached out to the airport manager in Pueblo. That's Ian Turner. He says losing the subsidies would significantly affect the airport because uh, eventually some of those funds go to maintaining it. It means less infrastructure improvements. It means less ability to maintain the current infrastructure we have and basically less ability for the local communities to get the projects done that that need to be done at any airport. So someone hearing this conversation might think, gosh, that's a lot of money that we're subsidizing per seat. Why are we doing that? What what was the uh, nature of Essential when Essential Air Service was created? There are many communities in the United States that are quite a long ways away from an airline hub. So the basic rules of the whole program going clear back into the 70s require that if there's an airport that is more than 210 miles driving miles away from a what the government calls a medium size or a large airline hub, then they're going to offer subsidized service if they can get an airline who is willing to offer service into those communities. And that presumably it would be really important for businesses in that area or families in some urgent situation to be able to fly out? That's correct. That's the justification for it. So when you read the applications for the airlines, they're supported by letters from the community, the airport board, the mayor of the city, the county commissioners, etc. And those letters always emphasize that small communities need air service so they can attract business, manufacturing, and the ability, as you say, for people who have personal needs, rather than driving at least two hours, sometimes in very bad weather, to get to a bigger airport to have some air service from the small communities. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about Essential Air Service. It's a program that President Trump, in his proposed budget, envisions eliminating, and it subsidizes flights into Pueblo, Alamosa, and Cortez in Colorado. I'm speaking with James Simmons, who specializes in aviation management at Metropolitan State University of Denver. James, what are the arguments that come up? And you say that, again, this is not the first administration to propose cutting EAS. What are some of the arguments against these kinds of subsidies? The arguments against them are that there's so little air service that people take advantage of in these small communities that it really is not worth the $277 million out of the federal budget to provide this subsidy. For example, we were talking about Pueblo earlier. In 2015, there were only 3,674 passengers total going both inbound and outbound out of Pueblo which makes it a very tiny uh, community of uh, flyers. Very often there's only two people, three people, maybe four people aboard an airplane. So it's not a situation where there's lots of tickets sold. We asked Pueblo's airport manager if funding was cut, uh, if the city would step in and look for additional monies to keep passenger service going. If there's no EAS subsidy, it would it, it would mean the end of air service in Pueblo. I don't believe that the city would be able to find the necessary funds to keep an airline flying to any destination from Pueblo, at least at this point in time. And yet I can imagine that if there are businesses, for instance, in Pueblo who say that air service is critical to what they do and to their bottom line, a consortium could get together and perhaps restore air service. Um, What options do you see 
uh, that could arise if indeed this program is either eliminated or cut significantly. Does such a consortium make sense to you? Yes, it does. And there are many communities in the United States where they have, for example, chambers of commerce or hotel associations that get together to provide subsidies to airlines. Oh, really? So this is not unheard of for airlines to do that. In fact, with Pueblo, there's a little quirk in the federal law that says because it's close to a another hub, namely Colorado Springs, then the community has to provide 5% of the funding. So at this point, the city of Pueblo provides 5% of the subsidy, which is about $88,000 a year. I see. And that means that it differs from Cortez and Alamosa in that respect. That's correct. Those communities are much farther away from any medium or large size airline hub. So for them, there's no easy and convenient other transportation option so that's why the, those communities are not required to come up with a 5% funding match. I guess what's fascinating is that it has been on the chopping block before, but it has survived. It has persisted. Why do you think that is? Because I think the political clout of smaller communities is quite strong in the federal government. Uh, this has been, as you say, proposed to be cut quite a few times, but there's always been... Um, political support, even among many conservative politicians, for example, that would talk about wanting to cut the federal budget. For example, um, there's some letters in the file that people can find online from Cory Gardner, the Colorado State Republican senator, in favor of continuing subsidies to these airports, whereas sort of as a generalization, uh, he might be more in favor of cutting federal spending for other things. Well, and, and lastly, it's fascinating because in many ways, uh, President Trump was was catapulted to the White House uh, with support from rural America. And uh, he, in fact, flew into Pueblo, didn't he, to campaign? Yes, he and, did. And change the voting dynamic there. Yes. And because they have a large size runway and air traffic control services there that Alamos and Pueblo don't have. The other thing about this is that they are in a situation where the proponents of essential air service say that it's such a drop in the bucket of the whole federal budget that uh, the $277 million really doesn't make much of a long-term difference. And so the program ought to be extended because there are these at least small needs in these very rural communities. And needs that I imagine at some points get critical. Uh, Thanks so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. James Simmons, professor of aviation at Metropolitan State University of Denver. So he said President Trump has proposed eliminating the essential air service program in his proposed budget, which would affect Pueblo, Cortez, and Alamosa. In other air service news, a new foreign carrier is coming to DIA. It was announced yesterday that Norwegian will offer nonstop service to, drumroll please, London Gatwick. It starts in September. A hundred years ago today, the United States declared war on Germany and entered World War I. Colorado's history during that time hasn't been well studied, but Metropolitan State University of Denver history professor Stephen Leonard wants to change that. He speaks with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. Steve, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Andrea. The war had been going on at this point since the summer of 1914. What was happening here in Colorado leading up to the U.S. involvement on April 6, 1917? Yes, as you say, the war had started in Europe in uh, July and August of 1914. 
And sadly, in a way, uh, our immediate reaction was this is going to um, boost demand for our minerals and our crops because obviously war disrupted a lot of agricultural production and other production in Europe. So uh, we're almost uh, immediately thinking, how, how can we cash in on the war? But there was another part of it, too. Um, there was a strong peace movement uh, that uh, grew in the war. And uh, so we had people working for uh, international peace. And, of course, we had a lot of people in Colorado who, uh, you know, were in, in a difficult position. We had a number of German people, people of German descent. We had the Irish who weren't particularly in favor of the English. Uh, many of them weren't. So um, it was a, a kind of a mixed situation at the beginning of the war. And, of course, the president called for Americans to be neutral, but it was very hard for people to be neutral when their cousins were at war. And when it came to Colorado politicians, how did they view the country's declaration of war? Well, uh, it was mixed, but uh, generally it was not uh, – most Colorado politicians in Washington – were not strongly pro-war, especially in the period before the war. And two of our Congress people, um, Edward Keating and um, Ben Hilliard, uh, were among the 50 members of the House of Representatives who voted against the war, um, which uh, uh, later hurt their political careers considerably. And uh, John Shafroth, our U.S. Senator, and Charles Thomas, our other U.S. Senator, uh, both uh, uh, Shafroth voted for it, and uh, Thomas, I think, uh, probably tried to duck the issue a little. Uh, so they weren't strongly in favor, I don't think, uh, although Shafroth did vote for it. And you said there were peace activists involved in the an anti-war effort, but what kind of role in general did Coloradans play in the effort? Well, we, we had two very prominent people in Colorado that were involved in the peace effort. Uh, uh, ben Lindsay, who was uh, famed as a juvenile court judge and really was one of the most uh, famous people in the country at the time because of his uh, muckraking and his um, uh, progressive ideas. And uh, Helen Ring Robinson, who was a uh, Colorado state senator, first uh, woman uh, elected to the state senate in, uh, in Colorado. Uh, Pat Pascoe has done a nice book on her. And uh, both of them were invited by Henry Ford, along with Henrietta uh, uh, Lindsay, who was uh, Lindsay's wife, to go on his peace ship. He had an idea that if they got a group of prominent people together in late 1915, they'd be able to sail off to Europe and uh, talk people into peace. Uh, it didn't work, but uh, they were part of that effort. They actually sailed. Yes, they went to. Uh, they sailed in December 1915. Went to Norway and various other places. But uh, you know, the major European powers weren't going to listen to Ben Lindsay. <laughs> and you mentioned that Colorado wanted to profit from the war. Um, and I understand there's a World War One connection with the molybdenum mine near Leadville. Talk about that. Yes, Colorado, uh, for many years, has been very proud of the amount of molybdenum we have in the state. It's uh, uh, and the Climax molybdenum um, uh, operation up near uh, uh, Leadville, and that was just being developed in the uh, 19-teens, and uh, uh, a German-controlled company, or largely German-controlled, owned 47 percent of the company. 
got involved in the uh, uh, development of that uh, that mine. And that's uh, what's um, needed to make high-grade steel. That's, that's right. It, uh, uh, it, it was steel that uh, could be used in uh, guns and uh, big, big armament, uh, you know, because they had huge guns in, in World War I. And uh, they, also tungsten was another important uh, mineral. And we had a big development uh, west of Boulder near Nederland in the uh, production of tungsten in, during the war. The uh, uh, molybdenum production rose uh, considerably in the war. Uh, the German company was eventually uh, uh, knocked out of it by U.S. laws and uh, – we had a considerable boom for for a, for a short time at at climax, and then of course after the war the the price collapsed for mm-hmm. <laughs> for molybdenum and it was a boom and bust uh, cycle. How many Coloradans served in the military during the war? Well, you get different numbers. Uh, I think uh, about a hundred thousand or so, but I've seen other numbers that say forty-three thousand. And what so, one num- set of numbers may be is, is that uh, the ones that went abroad versus those that uh, uh, simply trained. So it's uh, it's uh, for further research. You you mentioned how poorly researched this has been, and the war itself is well researched, and uh, you know what's happening in Europe is well researched, but the home front is uh, not as well done as it ought to be. How many Coloradans were killed? Again, you'll get varying numbers, but uh, maybe as many as 1,100, but that probably includes people who died of disease and who died of uh, accidents who never even got to uh, got to Europe. Uh, for example, there were two nurses who died in uh, England who were part of a base hospital that uh, was largely recruited from Denver and other places in Colorado. And they died of the flu. And, of course, the flu, the flu in 1918 kills far more people in Colorado than, than died in uh, European this battles. This was the flu epidemic. Yeah, a huge flu epidemic in September, especially in September, October, November, December of 1918. And uh, 7,500 uh, or more Coloradans will die in that flu epidemic. It was a horrendous thing. How much anti-German sentiment was there in Colorado because of the war? Uh, Considerable. The, the war was a, a matter of uh, getting people to be patriotic, but sometimes patriotism uh, could run amok. And uh, we were, uh, you know, uh, saying all sorts of nasty things about the Huns in Europe, and that sort of spilled over to saying nasty things about Germans in uh, in, in Colorado. And uh, we had lots of book burnings. Uh, I, I read the other day that Alamosa had had four four book burnings. Maybe they even had one after the fourth one. And I, I can't even imagine that there were that many German books in Alamosa. You know, they probably had to write German language books. Yeah, German language books. And they stopped teaching German in a lot of schools. And uh, Germans who uh, were pressured into buying what were called liberty bonds to support the war. There, there, it, it was, a, it was a, a bad page in Colorado history in terms of the treatment of Germans. What was it like for soldiers returning home to Colorado after the war? Well, there was something of an economic uh, decline after the war. The, the war had pumped up the economy, and so soldiers were in a, in a bad position. You know, the... the, the the standard view nationally is is that they wound up uh, some of them wound up um, uh, selling apples on street corners. Mm. I'm not too sure it was 
terrible in Colorado, but it was it was certainly an, a, a, a factor. And also, there'd been a huge amount of wartime inflation, and so uh, a lot of people were hurt economically during the war be, just because their wages didn't keep pace with the inflation. And we talked about peace activists. Did they change their mind about the war? Oh, yes, yes. Lindsay, both Lindsay and Robinson were, uh, once war was declared, were uh, very much in support of the war. Robinson uh, helped a lot in uh, selling liberty bonds and uh, uh, served on what was called the Women's Council of Defense. And uh, uh, so they were very active. And Lindsay eventually wrote a book about the, his, he, he visited Europe at least once once, maybe twice during the war, and wrote a book about his experiences. Were there Colorado war heroes? Yes, there were. Uh, there were uh, uh, Congressional Medal of Honor winners, uh, a man named Wickersham, Childs, uh, Funk, and Upton. And uh, uh, two, uh, Wickersham and Childs died in the war. We have an a American Legion post named Lydon Childs Wickersham that uh, uh, memorializes two of them. And uh, Upton and Funk, uh, uh, so they survived. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, Steve, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you very much. It's good to, good to be with you. Stephen Leonard is a history professor at Metropolitan State University of Denver. He spoke with my colleague, Andrea Dukakis. Leonard's been looking into Colorado's World War I-era history. There are links to commemorations around the state at cprnews.org. Here's an iconic song from a hundred years ago, performed by retired military musician Al Eberhardt of Pueblo. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're seeing a lot of protests these days around issues of social justice and equality. The Denver hip-hop group Flowbots wants demonstrators to have new songs to sing. So they wrote chants like this. I am a sleeping giant. Let's try that. I am a sleeping giant. Good. There lives a riot in my bones. There is a riot in my bones. Later, the song grew into a track on their new album. This album is called No Enemies, and it comes out in a few weeks. We're going to get a preview from Jamie Laurie, known as Johnny Five, and Stefan Brackett, known as Br'er Rabbit, from Flowbots. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Where did the idea come from to create songs that people would sing in the streets, Jamie? Well, I mean, it's an old idea, right? It's one that, um, if you look back at any social movement, there were people who were who were singing together, um, and, and it was a source of collective power. Um, and it really only feels like a new idea because people haven't been doing it as much in recent years. But Yeah, do me- you think it fell out of fashion? It certainly seems like it. I mean, uh, there was a mentor of ours, um, Vincent Harding, who would always 
push us on this question and say, this, it's great that you guys are in a band and it's great that you're connecting your band to social movements, but where are the songs for the movements? And, you know, it's songs like the one just now that actually was a song written by a woman named Susie Q, um, a friend of ours, uh, Sleeping Giant, that we said, you know what, these songs are already here. Why don't we start singing them? So um, that's what this this project has been about. And, and Stefan, it's important to say that you started this way before President Trump's campaign and election. Absolutely. Yeah, this is yes. an older project. Yeah, um, the album that is coming out in uh, May, we've been pretty much working on it for about three years. And it's been this beautiful thing where you're working on something and trying to write about what you're hearing, what we're gathering from the streets, what we're hearing from communities, different activist communities as well. And now we have an album that seems like it was tailor-made for this time. Huh. And... um Yes, but all but that's all, coincidence. It's, it's coincidence. <laughs> it's totally coincidence. Like, like Trump, Trump, like Trump wasn't even a serious candidate when we were when we were writing these albums. But it is. We feel like it's really appropriate for now. We're really excited for it to be in people's hands. Are you taking a political stance in releasing this album, or is it for all protesters of all stripes? Would you say? Well, I think political um, means a lot of things to a lot of people. To us, what it means is engaging with your community in a serious way, that where you're trying to transform things that need to be transformed. So you know. Climate change is political, right? Caring about your environment is, is, is political, but also making sure that the, um, the the neighborhoods and communities are safe for people. That's that's political. So yes, absolutely. To the song that we opened with, Sleeping Giant, how did you sort of envision that song as it uh, evolved? So in, in 2014, when, when the Black Lives Matter movement was really front and center, um, there was this sense that, you know, what were people supposed to do when they felt this justifiable rage at a life cut short? Where were what? What could, what could you do when you marched together? Um, it didn't feel like there, that the chants were there. It didn't feel like there was an activity people could do together to convey that. And we heard this song of a friend of ours, Susie Q, just, you know, that felt like it could contain some of that rage. And we thought, you know, we asked her, what if we were to take that and start singing it in groups of, of activists who were going to be marching together? And so we did that, and it felt closer to something that could contain those that sort of deep pain when when someone's life is cut short. But also an awakening. I am a sleeping giant. Absolutely. Well, I think one of the main politics about this album is just getting people to stand against the culture of silence. And we feel like music is one of the most beautiful ways for people to come together and experience their emotional journey. And that is one of the things, if you look at songs as technology, that it allows people to come together and feel something together. And then in that same breath, not feel alone. I, I wonder, though, if people are hesitant to sing in public, because I think this country places great emphasis on singing well, if you sing. Absolutely. And um, I wonder if, if to some extent, that's why it's fallen out of favor, is people think, well, I'm not good enough to be on The Voice. I, I wouldn't sing at this rally. It is exactly that. We've professionalized almost all of the different art forms. So people feel as though, um, yeah, that they don't have the permission to do so. But we also think that in doing that, we're also teaching each other not to use our voices, both singing and speaking out. Hmm. And um, so we, like, it, for our, we feel like this is a great way for people to practice, like, shouting beautifully. And uh, also, when you sing, it's more of an emotional argument. So it's not as easy to block out. You mentioned Vincent Harding as an inspiration here. So um, I want to say that this is a double album and you have uh, a record of, of some more raw recordings. And uh, Vincent Harding was very heavily involved in the civil rights era. He's the late author and activist in Denver who worked with Martin Luther King Jr. He died in, in 2014. And I understand that he introduced you to some of these 
spirituals to some of these songs of the civil rights era. Tell me more about how he influenced this. I mean, he was a mentor for both of us, for and a family friend, and someone we've known you know, um, most of our lives. And what he really introduced us to was was the fact that the Southern Freedom Movement was a singing movement, and that that was not icing on the cake. Mm-hmm. That was a core technology that people were using to be able to be um, sustained and strong and courageous in key moments, and that it was a culture that came out of a, a much deeper tradition. Um, and all of that was it was a wellspring of strength for that movement. So he would always point to the need to foster that, not in a in a superficial short term way, but in a mm. deeper long term way. And that that really inspired us to say right after he passed away, actually, to realize we needed to start answering this question he had been asking about where are the songs for today's movements. We needed to help write them. We needed to help reclaim them. We needed to help remix them and uh, spread and disseminate them. A couple of years ago, a group stood outside the Denver Police Department and sang one of Harding's favorite civil rights songs called We Are Building Up a New World. I think that tune also might carry the title Jacob's Ladder. Others might know it that way. Yeah. Is a good protest song necessarily simple that is easy to memorize? Um, or or like what, what makes a good protest song? Um, in the process of trying to recover these traditions, we realize that there's a difference between songs of performance and what we're calling songs of power. And songs of power are those, are those protest songs, and they're usually very evocative. Hmm. They emotionally or accurately reflect the emotion of the time. And usually the second time that you hear it, you can sing it yourself. So a lot of the times in the Southern Freedom Movement, you use songs that came from the, the black church because people knew the melody. So what we do now with No Enemies is like we a lot of times will borrow melodies from a Justin Bieber song or something like that. So if we're in a large group, uh, if people hear the melody, they connect, then, then they, can, they can connect and then just adjust the words and then can join in. And that joining in is the essential thing. Does Justin Bieber know you're doing this? Um, we, we haven't let him know quite okay. yet. I think he's, he's, on, he's on board conceptually. Yeah. I mean, one of the other things that happens too is that I think that the um, so the culture will be ready for a certain level of song. So if, if if everyone is scared to sing, if it's completely countercultural to raise your voice at all, then maybe the most you can do at a rally is chant. But if you actually have practiced singing together and you you know know some of the same melodies and it's something that you do on the regular, then it becomes much more possible to do something more adventurous. Um, you know, in, in, in during a march, during a rally. So a chant might be a way to just break open just a, a slight fracture right. and, and perhaps get someone involved more thoroughly in singing. I understand that you both particularly love the song Failure Games. My brother, we lost you to the waters that have always lied to us. I lost you thought my hands were quick. But they were never quick enough I lost you to the demons That have grown up in the grip of thus And I wasn't in your corner When those lies came to fisticuffs My other were all born with a dragon brand On our shoulder blades Scars are invisible But my spine knows the weight Denver hip-hop band Flowbots are with me, Stefan Brackett, and 
Jamie Laurie, tell me about this song. Um, with Failure Games in particular, um, well, with the album No Enemies, period, we also wanted to kind of deal with the emotional spectrum of trying to be a change maker and what the, the roller coaster ride that is. And um, something that is often not talked about are the increased in. Um, failure comes up a lot. Um, Th- that is to say, the maybe disappointment in some movements in, in the direction of the country? The disappointment, but also, like, usually when you're starting with a movement, there's like this belief and there's this huge momentum. Like, there's this, all this progress. You're like, oh, we're going to topple patriarchy tomorrow. And then it doesn't fall. And so, um, there's that disappointment, that disenchantment, that disillusionment. And that's just part of the cycle of like thinking that you can get a bunch of people to change something and then like feeling, realizing how long a marathon that is. And um, in failure games in particular, um, I was, the, the, the verse that you just played um, is specifically written about a friend of mine who was a brilliant member of the struggle who um, ended up taking his life mm-hmm. um, and specifically locating that feeling of failure of... Um, could I have done more um, as an activist, as a friend, um, as somebody, as a brother in the struggle? I mean, it's interesting because depression has apparently been a problem in the Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. in particular. The Washington Post reported last year about dozens of leaders in the movement sharing stories of anxiety and insecurity on social media. You talked about your personal experience there. Yes. Because even, even like depression is a constant we all know but do not notice type of thing. Do you worry that the current momentum that you sense uh, for activism, activism will peter out? No, because I think it's, it's not a matter of sustaining the exact same type of momentum throughout. It's more about deepening and building relationships that are long-term and transformative. And it's one of the reasons that we've not just promoted singing and songs as a tool for act, for movements, but um, creating spaces to sing together, because that's also places where people build relationships where there might not be them. We may not have churches that can um, that, that people attend regularly and build relationships there, so we need to create those spaces. And you've been doing that. You've had singing events in the community. Absolutely. Yeah, the last, you know, since 2014, we've done over 50 events just in Denver and then also around the state and around the country, just gathering people and saying, what are some songs we can all sing together and why are we all so scared? of singing do you find people who uh lose the fear every time yeah every time every time simply by asking the question people say that's a silly fear and they lose the fear and if you if you spend all the time talking about why you're not singing then it doesn't work so we just have people sing and then afterwards like oh i enjoyed that and i'd like to do more of it and and it proved to be a very fertile soil from which this album grew because that Mm. you know that was just sort of creating this common culture well, why don't we go out with one more song from the album called Carousel. It's about the, the information bubble that social media and cable TV can help create. Jamie Laurie and Stefan Brackett, better known as Johnny Five and Br'er Rabbit, from the Denver hip-hop group Flowbots. Their new album, No Enemies, comes out next month. This month, though, they'll perform songs from the album with the Denver dance company Wonderbound. More information about that at our website, cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
the colors in the world Tour all these sights like I'm on a boat float Maneuver on my eyesight High on a post ghost Illuminate the night like two minute light Right in tune with the zeitgeist The movement is so human and lifelike Forget the small talk Give me the festival slot The best that y'all got Leave me up here on my pedestal While the rest of y'all One of the biggest food companies in the world, Denon, is buying a Colorado company, White Wave Foods, which makes silk soy milk. The Justice Department is making Denon sell off its organic milk brand Stonyfield for fear competition would be reduced too much in the market. With that, the $10.5 billion deal can proceed. The founder of White Wave is Steve Demas of Boulder, who had a passion for tofu in the 1970s. I spoke with him last year. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Take us back to those early days. You started cooking tofu in a big cauldron in a small kitchen in Boulder. And describe for me what the operation looked like then. Boy, we're way back there when the uh, dinosaurs roamed the earth. (laughs) Um, At that time, uh, small was beautiful and artisan was highly regarded. And I decided that I wanted to open an artisan tofu company. And I and my partner, Pat Calhoun, we did just that up in Boulder. It was called the Cow of China. And we had, you know, an iron cauldron, a wooden stave barrel, uh, some handmade tools and implements. So effectively, we were trying to replicate uh, the Japanese artisans and the Chinese artisans who had made village tofu. Unfortunately, we found that small was very beautiful, but highly unprofitable. And we sort of switched gears to becoming a true manufacturer um, after struggling for about a year. But that, of course, implies that there was demand for tofu. And my understanding is at the time, it was not a mainstream food. Uh, All four customers loved our product. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Boulder and Colorado have been extraordinarily um, generous to me in offering me a platform on which to introduce some of these foods, while it wasn't accepted by mainstream, it was uh, an increasing demand product in Boulder, and we were one of the the very first to offer a consumer a, a vegetable protein product. And how did you sell it to those who might have been wary at first? Well, we touted its protein, which is always the... Um, uh, the selling point of soy, it's a complete amino acid profile in the soybean, and that's rare in the legume or plant protein area. As far as usage, that's where it became difficult. Uh, as far as nutritional content, had lower saturated fats and had uh, equal protein efficiency to chicken or something equivalent. How we introduced it to the public was through... Um, demonstrations. We uh, were at the Colorado State Fair at one point in all of the supermarkets, and we would make up tofu meatballs, tofu sandwiches, anything that we could possibly get our hands on. And, you know, for all of our efforts, I'd have to say it didn't work. I was very passionate about it, but convincing America to try a substance that could be described as soft, strange, no flavor, never had anything like this before, uh, was a real challenge. Well, how did you get over it? We were an overnight success in 18 years. <laughs> um, tenacity and perseverance really do count. And it really was a rising tide. My observation of why I even wanted to get into this product was because there was a rising demand 
for uh, food on the planet, and there was an ever-increasing population base. I had been living overseas in India for a number of years and became very sensitive to the fact that we were the highest consumption country in the world, and I took it upon myself to introduce the American mainstream to an alternative way of living, which consequently would um, increase the amount of available protein on the planet due to efficiency, and thus somebody out there, in my estimation, uh, was going to benefit from this. There's a myth to dispel that you used to deliver tofu around Boulder in a little red wagon. Uh, My understanding is that that actually happened, but it wasn't you toting it around. That's fair. And I have to, I, I'll give you the punchline to the story is when we ultimately sold the company, more of the investment community gave me little red wagons than they gave me money, I think. <laughs> um, at, at the time when the shop, the Cow of China, was making tofu, we would, it would be fresh every morning. And there was an, a health food store down the street in Boulder called Down to Earth. And Trudy Stewart and her child um, would load up in the little red wagon and then take... I don't know, 50 to 100 blocks of tofu, maybe three, four blocks down the road. Well, I got credited with taking the wagon up and down the street while, in fact, I was driving a Jeep down to Denver to distribute it to the natural food stores there. The tofu Jeep. Yeah, the tofu Jeep. I want to mention that the cauldron in which you cooked that early tofu was recently named one of Colorado's top historic artifacts. I'm sure a lot of sorceresses out there would love to have this cauldron. It is, <laughs> it is the ideal that came, looking like it came from um, the early settlement days. We processed soy milk, hot soy milk in this cauldron um, for a number of years, and we would curdle the milk and um, precipitate the curds out of this liquid and then press them into tofu. Once we shifted to factory production, then we, like every other factory, use stainless steel equipment for sanitation purposes. You've talked about the nutritional benefits of soy, but some people question that. They say soy is high in a compound that acts like estrogen in the body, that it may disrupt normal estrogen levels. Critics also say soy has a high level of an acid that reduces the absorption of minerals like calcium, magnesium, and zinc. Uh, What is your response? That's a great question, and I love responding to this. First of all, let's talk about the trypsin inhibitor that um, exists in all raw soybeans. Not even farm animals will eat raw soy. Soy has to be processed with heat before the inhibitor is neutralized. Once that occurs, then there is no enzymatic um, problem with the consumption of soy, and it's not going to give anybody stomach aches or anything. So that just puts aside some of the availability of the, uh, the nutrients in the bean. The way I respond to the question that is posed about the safety of soy is I ask a question. Mm-hmm. Would you have faith in a product that has been consumed for over 2,000 years by over billions and billions of people, and yet none of the evidence, there is no evidence of what you're talking about in the cultures that consumed this soy. The answer is very obvious. It's one of the greatest epidemiological studies that's ever been done on a food. Um, the fact of the matter is we're talking about what's called low-technology processed soy or aqueous water-extracted soy. I make no argument for chemically 
altered um, soy or any other form of extracting the proteins. Mm. But I do point to the indigenous foods of miso, tempeh, tofu. Take me back again to those early days um, uh, of the company that became White Wave. Were there other companies on the horizon at that time? Did Boulder feel like something of a, of a nursery for uh, these kinds of foods? Well, it still does, in fact. Yeah. Um, this is probably the, the greatest spawning grounds of natural foods companies in the United States. At the time that I opened uh, the doors for White Wave, there was, an, there was one other small company uh, that had just also started up making tofu in Boulder. And there were another about 200, 250, something like that, um, that opened around the country. After about 10 years of weeding amongst all of these competitors regionally, um, or maybe more 15 years, there was probably 10 left standing. Wow. And obviously we were one of them. You sold White Wave to a major player in the food industry, Dean Foods, in the early 2000s, and you stayed for several years, then left that company. What uh, were your kind of internal dialogues about selling and whom to sell to? Well, first of all, we resisted the sale to Dean Foods. At that time, it was a company by the name of Suiza Foods in uh, Dallas, and they had purchased Dean Foods Chicago. Dean Foods Chicago had invested an amount of money in us with an op- with an opportunity to buy us after five years. We had what we considered given them a sweetheart deal. And when they were acquired by another company, we sued in federal court to be released from the deal and then paid the debt back of the previous investments. Mm. Uh, we lost in the court of appeals on that. And effectively, the conversation was, you have all the rights, obviously, legally to buy the company, but that does not mean the management team will be coming along with it. That includes me and just about everybody that you can pass in the offices. So it wasn't a threat. It was we need to have autonomy and we need to continue running this business the way we have been running this business and we'll be a happy part of this new corporation. Uh, They agreed entirely and they supported our growth. Now, they bought us when we were a $125 million business, might have been more than that. Um, But when I left at the end of this tenure, we were $304 million with a budget for 360. So we were producing everything that capitalism wanted us to produce, return on assets, growth, profits. So the experience inside operating as an autonomous company uh, was very positive. And we felt that we were going to drive this to being a widely accepted mainstream product in a very short period of time. Steve, we have just a few seconds, but I understand that someone recently gave you the ore, the large paddle that you used to stir the tofu in the cauldron. Is that true? I'm very proud to tell you that that's Chris O'Reilly. And um, he did. He walked up to me at a party and gave me that uh, tofu paddle. 
That is Steve Demas, founder of White Wave Foods. He lives in Boulder, and as we said, he sold the company. Now, food giant Danone is buying White Wave for more than $10 billion. That's Colorado Matters for today. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. Thanks so much for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner at Colorado Public Radio. Mm-hmm.